photography is not what people think. It's not about just pressing the button on that little piece of camera equipment. It's totally the opposite to that. It's about physical energy. Born in the then impoverished district of Finsbury Park, North London in 1935, Sir Don McCullen fell into photography almost by mistake when his photograph of the gang who roamed his street was published by The Observer in the 1950s. After this, he was sent off to cover every major conflict, from Vietnam to Biafra, Lebanon and Northern Ireland. He has helped raise five children and enjoyed three marriages, been read in awards and is collected by the major museums of the world, including the Tate. In 2017, he became a Knight of the Realm, the second photographer to have been given such an honour after Cecil Beaton. So now I'm really happy to welcome the legend of photography, who, full disclosure, is also my husband, to the salubrious environs of Colford's at Orient's. This is a first for me. I don't think I've ever interviewed a husband before. And uh, I don't think that in your lifetime and the four wives you've had, you've ever been interviewed by one, have you? No, but I think really, if you've spent 20 years living with somebody, there's hardly any point in interviewing you. By then, you would have known enough about them to either ah. love them or dislike them entirely. Why? Well, you don't know. Wait till the end of this. I'm going to ask you some questions that I've never been able to ask you before. I think. Okay, I don't see any reason why I shouldn't be able to answer you okay. sincerely, really. So. Okay, so let me confess one thing. When I met you 20-odd years ago at that particular birthday party, I'm not sure that I would have gone ahead with it if I had known that you were my, my father's age, actually. I thought you were about 15 years younger than you are. Well, it's nice of you to say that. I'm actually slightly older than your father, not his age. And, and I also thought at the back of my mind, it, it's nice talking to this young and attractive woman. I'm sure, you know, once I'm gone, she'll cast me completely out of her mind. So I, I, I never had any, you know, real agenda the, the, the evening I met you. But I'm totally surprised that, um, you know, the way, way things have turned out, how, how well they've turned out, because we have a have a, a very nice 19-year-old son and, um, you know, and it's given me a much more a longer life, I think, because I'm surrounded by younger people, my son and yourself. So. Yeah, and, and, and younger friends. One of the definitions of staying young, I think, is that if, you, if you're plugged in to younger people and you think young, don't you? Well, I think it's the nature of my, my job because I'm a photographer and I, I, I'm always looking for new horizons and I'm, um, my horizons are kind of, they go in very, a long way into infinity. So I, I, I think, and I think the problem is when a man gets to a certain age, he starts looking not so much in the past, but more of how much longer his future may be. So, you know, I, I, I try not to live the the old man's life i try to to live a you know a life with expectations really older people hark back to their youth a lot of the time are you saying you don't do that you live in the present is that what you're saying i think i'm basically stained in in memory of my past and some of which i'm um slightly ashamed of and some of which i'm partly proud of it's a mixture of one and the other but in fact the I've always looked forward because I've got this enthusiasm for my work and my work in a way. I'm not like a man who worked in a coal mine who knew at the age of 65 he'd be living his life in permanent daylight instead of being stuck down in the dark in coal mine. I, I, I've always looked 
forward to mm. achieving new things in my photographic I, life. I know, I know that all too well. And also, it's, it's a fact, isn't it, that photographers who are living this life, who, whose lives are their passion, really, live um, to a ripe old age. I mean, Cartier-Bresson was in his late 80s, wasn't 90s. he? 90s. 90s. Yeah, many photographers have lived beyond their 90s. Latigue, the French photographer, was 94, 95, and... Um, Oh, I can name a whole list of people. So, but it worries me that you are and, and knowing this, and that you've you've said before that you'd be a lost soul without photography, and yet this year you've been telling me that you want to close the darkroom down, um, that you want to get rid of the archive of this huge archive of photography, and and you want to pack it all in and never travel again. Now, why are you telling me this if you know that this is is what keeps you? tethered to reality and to your creative imagination. Well, sooner or later, your energy says I surrender to the fact that I, I can't walk from an aeroplane back to passport control and baggage collection, you know, which these days seems to be about a mile long. So carrying my camera equipment, when I was young, I used to be contemptuous of carrying 23 pounds of cameras on my shoulder. Now I'm suffering from all aches and pains and feet problems and things, and I'm quite envious when I see those electric chairs going by me with, with the old ladies on the back at London Airport, but I don't, want to be, I don't want to be one of them. So I still have this macho kind of thought that I am going to walk to get my baggage. I'm not going to surrender to the electric mm. kind of passing chair. Yeah. So. You think young, Don, that's why. You, you, uh, uh, yeah, you, your body may be crumbling in places, but you're... Your mind is willing. Photography is not what people think. It's not about just pressing the button on that little piece of camera equipment. It's totally the opposite of that. It's about physical energy. Mm. You know, when I was young, I could go into my dark room at half past six, seven o'clock in the morning and stay there for several hours. And now I limit myself to two or three because, you know, I'm standing in my dark room inhaling all that chemistry, which is quite dangerous. And anyway, I have 10,000 prints in our house where we live. What's the point in adding to those 10,000 prints? But what um, will you do with yourself, Don? It's a question I don't actually even uh, approach because I know that it, it, it would be quite depressing, really, because I know that if I can't walk over the fields where we live and I can't go down and look at the river, as I did this week, and I saw my first trout darting up the river, which gave me enormous pleasure, and I saw my first young bunny rabbit running across the road when I went down to get the newspapers the other morning. There are certain inspiring moments like that which are attached to life itself. Mm. And, and it, it, it gives you hope that new and young things are, are growing when you're looking at the edge of your life. Uh, and, one, and one of the, the differences in you is that 20 years ago when I met you, you would have been hoiking that fish out of the river and eating it. And you might have been even sort of taking a shot at the, um, well, certainly maybe not the rabbit, but maybe at the rats in the garden or the pigeon in the garden or the squirrel in the garden. Now you won't kill a thing, will you? I've, I've, it's very strange. I think it must be the kind of Buddhist in me, really. But um, frankly speaking, I can't even bring myself to kill a, a, an insect. And despite the fact that the, the very insect that eats my clothes in our closet at home, <laughs> the moths, I, I've always had a, an instinctive kind of thought that by helping others, particularly spiders that get caught in bars, I, I can't bring myself to let them struggle away to get all the way up and slip all the way down. I have to help them out. And uh, it's a silly way of 
Well, actually, I can confess something now. Do you know what one of the things that uh, seduced me about you in the first instance? Do you, can you guess what it was? No, good. It was when you first invited me down to Somerset and you bought uh, a, a wounded robin out of your coat pocket and you handed it to me. Do you remember that? Yes, because what they... Living in the country in the summer with your doors open, often swifts and swallows and robins would come into the house and then thinking the window was another open door would crash into it and I would, I would capture them and, and make, make them feel that they would be safely returned to where they came from. Mm. It's, a, it's a bit at odds with this image that you portray of the sort of hard-bitten war of photographer, isn't it? Well, I was never really hard-bitten, really. I'm, the man I, I was in war was a man who went to war, but if I didn't have the compassionate kind of soul that I have in my makeup, it was totally the opposite of what the image that, that of a war reporter mm. or photographer would give you. I mm. actually, I could have only taken those kind of pictures that I took because I had a compassionate soul and, and, and a, a, Empathy, a, a, yeah. a kind of compassionate eye. So I, I didn't do those war pictures if I was making a Hollywood film. They weren't pictures of entertainment. They were pictures of compassion and mm. a cry for help. I agree with you, but there was there's also something in your nature that is drawn to excitement and uh, adrenaline and yeah. I um, mean, yes, drama. I, mean, and I, I wouldn't be telling the truth if I didn't say that going to war has a huge exciting element attached to it, but then you have to detach that and get real and say, this is not what I'm here for, you know. It would be obscene to think I was going there to kind of get my rocks off, you know. Mm. It would be, mm. it, I, I, it took me a few years to realize that what I, the pictures I was taking of war were the wrong pictures. Mm. I was concentrating on the image of the soldier, the hero, the, the man line, yeah. standing up against the, the, the might of, of, of the explosion and the bullet. No, I got it all wrong in the beginning. And it wasn't until I went to the war in Biafra in 1967, I got sobered up, I, I got my comeuppance. And, and when I showed pictures of, of dying children, hundreds of dying children, you know, and I saw the effect it had on people, mm. I realized then I'd been making a mistake, you know, several years before, instead of making those Hollywood-type images of soldiers throwing mm. grenades and, and mm. you know, charging. And, mm. and I, I, I got it all wrong. And so... And that had an effect on, on the courses of wars, didn't it? When people over their breakfast table saw those, those starving children, they put pressure on governments, do you think? Do you think it changed the course of, of the wars? Um, Certainly, maybe not in Biafra, but... but um, I'm assuming that, but frankly speaking, at the end of the day, it didn't. You know, I went to many wars. I mean, the war that's going on in Ukraine right now, you know, we all feel terribly uh, sad about it. And, and, and looking at the... The, the women and the refugees and the loss of homes and the destructions of their whole lives. You know, one would say this would be the war to all end wars. There's no such thing. As soon as one war is finished, um, another war is waiting in the wings. And as much as um, what I would have hoped in the past would have helped to change the climate and thinking of, of people in power, it hasn't had the slightest effect, really. Do you, is there a part of you that wishes that you were covering this war, the Ukrainian war? 
Yes, there is, but I know I wouldn't be able to operate the way I did in the war in Vietnam where I had total freedom to roam around the Vietnamese landscape and go from one battle scene to the next. I fear this Ukrainian war is heavily censored by the Ukrainians. Mm. Having the, the same mindset as the Russians would have, they would never let you go to the real front. I've never seen any evidence that they've allowed the photographers in this war and, and, and news teams to go to the very, very front of the war where human sacrifice is being paid in, you know, in the death of soldiers. Well, yeah. They I talk did. about soldiers and soldiers' mothers. You know, the Ukrainian mother is no different from the Russian mother who loses a son. Mm -hmm. So the whole propaganda that the Ukrainians are putting out right now about the Russian mothers, you know, receiving the body of their sons, you know, so there's all that kind of so it's propaganda. Yeah. All that propaganda that goes on, it's it's going on on both sides in that. At the, so I know if I went to the war in Ukraine, there are two problems anyway to start with. One is I'm too old to to run. You were too old to run, even when you went to... How long ago was it when you went to... Um, Aleppo. Aleppo, and you went with Anthony Lloyd of the Sunday Times. Uh, no, you? the Times the newspaper. Times. And um, he said, even then, I remember when he wrote the article, he said, Don is young in mind but old in body and I feel responsible for him and he's going to hamper my movements. Do you think he was, he was a little bit derogatory in the piece? Do you remember it that? It was, actually, because while we were there, we came under fire one day and I had to cross the road with sniper fire pouring on me. I, was, I think I was about 76 Seven. or something, 77, you know, mm. and I had a bulletproof jacket and, of course, it, the, the, the weight of the jacket and my camera gear, I was, I was peddling another 25 pounds in weight on top of my old kind of 70-year-old mm. um, legs. So I, I wasn't moving fast enough and, and Lloyd was behind pushing me and he nearly knocked me over into a whole load of broken glass. And I mean, it was slightly hilarious and absurd, but um, my mind was, has always been focused. And I realized, you know, my body really wasn't um, coming up trumps and I was, I, 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 I suppose if I had to be honest, I was slightly out of my depth, but mm. my, my intentions were, were good. Mm. You know. what, was the, what was your moment of greatest fear, do you think, in, in your career? Oh, well, always when you're under fire, because, you know, you, you hear bullets which are traveling faster than the speed of sound snapping over your head. There's an adrenaline rush when it's happening, but you are fearful of that bullet. Um, you know, when, when I look at the wounds of of other people who are not so fortunate and see what a bullet can do. I mean, a bullet can hit you in the backside and come out the side of your neck because of the, the velocity, it wriggles its way through your body with such powerful velocity. So I once picked a man up who'd been shot in the face with a bullet and the whole of his j jaw had been blown away and I was looking down his throat. Mm, don't. And I did pick him up and carry him to a truck and get him to hospital, but I mean, that's not my job, you see. I'm, I was a photographer. I wasn't there. Sometimes the compassion can overrule you and carry you away, and you then stop thinking of, you know, stop taking pictures, help this person. So you're, you're not there in a dual role. You know, you realize that you're there to record this, and you're not trained as a physician or, or a, you know, a first aid person. So the confusion sometimes mm. overwhelms you, and then... You, you lose it a bit. Yeah, yeah, the moral confusion and what, what your role is in that moment. Did you wonder what the hell you were doing in your late 60s in a war zone? 
with your new wife and baby at home. Yeah, I tell you, I didn't, I didn't worry. I, I didn't give too much thought to that. If you, with, with your consent, <laughs> um, I was actually trying to earn a living. Mm-hmm. When I when I worked in those days, I, I earned what they called the National Union of Journalists rate. I didn't get paid any more than any of the photographers that worked on the Sunday Times. It was the only way I could understand of, of, of earning a living. I supported you and Max mm-hmm. by my photography. Um, had I been a, a fashion advertising photographer, I could have earned vast amounts of money and lived in without having to leave home and, and would have left a life of pure luxury and, and joy, you know. Mm. So I chose the other road. I, I chose a road which, in a way, I feel rather proud in a way that I, I, I didn't look at a financial reward. I did it because I was doing something humanitarian. And, and No, you've never been... Um, money has never been what drives you. You have... Uh, you're driven by, by something completely different. I've been driven purely by my love of photography. Mm. But, you know, when I was a young man in the Royal Air Force, I went to a photographic unit, and I was there for two years. And when I left the Air Force, I failed my 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 test, trade test, to become a photographer in the Air Force. Yeah. I came out as a failed RAF photographer. I know. I always felt that I failed as a, as a young child at school. I failed the 11-plus. I failed everything that I was ever tested. I wonder whether those early failures made you what you are, actually. I wonder whether they they drove you in the end because you weren't going to be brought down, but you're a very determined person and you have innate self-belief. Well, I I started off with a a terrible insecurity, an inferiority complex from my class background. I grew up in North London and me and my mother and father and brother slept in the same room at night. I used to sleep in the shirt I went to school in every day. There was no kind of hygiene. There was no bathroom all new. So I know it sounds a bit like the hard luck story, but one of the things that drove me later on in life is I've always had a fear of of going back to that poverty and that ignorance and that shame. Do you think it's easier for people now to get on? Or do you think that, I mean, the 1960s, everything opened up, the social boundaries were dissolved and it became possible for people from your background perhaps to, to to get on in a way that they might not have done before. Do you think we live in a world which is more straitjacketed now or, or less? Most certainly because we're, we're, we're governed by, we have to be very careful what we say these days. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways it's good because, you know, you, you should really respect respect those around you. I mean, I was brought up to be contemptuous and I didn't respect those around me because I was ignorant from the background I sadly inherited. But this day and age, you know, the, the, the woke thing is trying to go too far and bully you. But I mean, it's high time that we respected handicapped people. Those are the good things that have come about a race and all these new, new things that have come along that we've been made aware of. Thank God, because in a way we would have gone on being the same old Bigoted. kind of nasty people. Mm. So I think from the beginning of my life, you know, the, the 60s came, we thought it was revolution, it was time for the working class people to rise up and, and, and take the opportunity to grab what we thought had been denied us. And, you know, so the working class people, if they had the, a, an inch of talent, really usurped that and did incredibly well. One of them, really. But um, Mm. I never wanted to be a photographer. I didn't even have a knowledge of what photography... We didn't own a camera in my family. So um, photography came out of nowhere. 
and gave me a life, really. Like everything in your life, it's serendipity. Things happen to you by happy coincidence. But, I mean, it was your mother buying back the roly cord from the store that you, you, you sold no, it on. I, I bought a camera in Kenya when I was in the Air Force. Mm. To, at the, you know, the latter part of my time in the Air Force, which I had left mm. for six months, I brought the camera back, and, of course, it had no place in my life in Finsbury Park, so I pawned it for five pounds. And my mother re redeemed that, got the five pounds and got the camera out for me. And I started photographing the local boys. And it was because the local boys were involved in a gang war that a policeman tried to separate one Sunday night when I wasn't there. The policeman was killed by an opposing gang member, mm. killed the policeman with a knife. The man who did it was hung. His girlfriend died of a broken heart, the policeman's girlfriend. That I, my life was basically kicked off on yet another segment of um, violence because yeah. violence was commonplace where I grew up as a boy. Yes, and that picture of the governor's was the first gift you ever gave me. First picture I ever. Yeah, the got first everything, the first present you ever gave me of the governor's, and that was the picture that uh, launched your career. I know that, and in fact, speaking about the governor's, those people in that photograph. Are there any alive still, and are you in touch with them? I mean, I think you were going to ring one of them this week. There's only one of the boys in that picture alive, actually. It was taken in 1958 mm. on a sunny day. I had mm. no exposure meter, mm. just had the camera and a roll of Ilford mm. film in it, and I judged the exposure. It's the best negative I've ever shot, and I processed the negative. Yeah, you know, what it is is that um, I, I process all my film and make all my exhibition prints, so most photographers don't. You know, most... Most photographers don't. So, and most photographers certainly don't um, are working at my age now. Mm. So, um, photography gave me a life. It also gave me an extra life because I started what they say about travel broadens the mind. I've been mm. around this world so many times. I only speak the English language barely correctly, but in a way, I've managed to get through all that drama. 65, nearly 70 years of drama. I've been in prison in Uganda. I've watched people being murdered in prison. And I, I, I think, how is it I've managed to, A, in the first place, be witness to all this and survive all this? I mean, I've had malaria. I've had, you know, cerebral malaria. I've had wounds, shrapnel wounds. I've had broken bones, broken ribs, broken arms. And, you know... But the collateral damage, I suppose, was that in your private life, you're... you're marriages, quite a few of them failed, didn't they? It was difficult to maintain uh, happy marriages and and the the post-traumatic stress or the, the trauma of what you went through. It must have, it obviously had an effect, didn't it? I think I think it's very difficult for, without being uh, you know, untruthful about what we're talking about here, it's just that we don't make great husbands, people who work for newspapers. Many of the newspaper people I knew all had three or four marriages. Mm. And God knows how they paid off their alimony to different wives, but mm. they managed to do it. But at the end of the day, we were not great husbands. I know that. We suffered from only one problem. It was called selfishness. Mm. We put ourselves before our families. And it was totally unfair to do that. So I, I'm constantly living in a shadow of guilt, which I'll never get rid of. I mean, some people I know laughed it off and just had another, well, another, another drink, you know. But I, I, I've never really allowed myself to not feel guilty about it. What, do you think you've been a lousy husband to me? 
I don't think so whatsoever. I think mm. I've been, I've learned from the other problems with, you know, so that it makes our mm. 20 years together. I think it's, it's, it's been a, a better 20 years. You wouldn't think so, maybe, but I've been really, <laughs> really been a lot more considerate than I was in the past. Mm. And I think that we share many similar passions for travel, for, for exploration, for adventure. I know how extraordinary it was a few years ago. You and I went on a journey. It was quite a few years ago now. We went to Africa, and we found ourselves in a village in the Omo Basin down mm. in southern Ethiopia. And suddenly all these people burst out of the bushes, many of them naked men. And, and I noticed you said, oh, Don, let's go. I don't like this. I'm, I'm afraid. And, um, and what I did, I came back to England, and I said to you, would you mind if I went back? And then I, it was the beginning of me planning an, another book on the tribes of the Omo Valley, which I did. It wasn't that I was afraid. I felt awkward in my in my perhaps middle-class way about being an observer. It was like a sort of human safari, and I felt awkward in that position, in that stance. But you, with your camera, don't have that feeling of awkwardness, I notice, which always interests me about you because you're quite a... You're not an extrovert, but when you have a camera in your hand you seem to feel invincible and I, I would shrink away, but you seem to be able to do things that I would never do because I would have a feeling of embarrassment or, or, or reserve, actually. You know something, when I go to a culture like that, that kind of knowledge becomes food to me. Mm. I see it as, a, as a, it, it nourishes my kind of, my kind of slight shame of my uneducated background. And I think this is a chance to learn something. Learn something that another person who's ten times more educated than I'll ever be will never get the chance to do because he's not here. I've stood in front of extraordinary human beings, some of the most primitive people on this earth in, in Irian Jaya, the other half of New Guinea. Cannibal people, not, not far removed from cannibalism. The most dangerous, dark, Conradian places. You know, I've I felt both privileged to be there and hungry to learn. And and I'm now, you know, as I get older, and I haven't got many years left, I'm absolutely thirsty to learn new new cultural things. So you're still thirsty to learn about new cultures. There you are. That's the that's the uh, key to your age-defying magic, I suppose. Well, um, Yes, or or do you want to retire? I say I do, but I if I do, I'd probably fall off the perch very quickly mm. if I start waiting to die. Which I I know if I'm if theoretically I I'm a thinker. I know if I don't I say one thing, I've got to be careful. You know, it might produce another thing. It might mm. produce the negative of what I'm thinking. So I'm I'm. It's a good idea sometimes for me not to say anything. Just sit, I mean, my silence and my thinking could probably save any kind of embarrassment because when you make a statement, people are waiting for the result. So uh, maybe I won't retire. You're very, you are very grounded. You're more grounded than anyone else I know, despite the horrors that you've seen. We have got a new grandchild and I'm interested to know whether that connection to to a new generation also is a thread, do you think, that, that keeps you feeling young, wanting to be there to see this little person grow up? 
it's funny you harp upon the word feeling young. It's more than once you've said it. Mm -hmm. um, it's not about feeling young about me or even thinking young. I, I feel like a boa constrictor that's swallowed a lamb. I've actually, you know, normally they fall asleep the boar when you, they, they've eaten those <laughs> creatures. Um, I'm not particularly ready to fall asleep, but I feel I've feasted on human life and existence and privilege. I ask for no more. Um, I deserve no more. And so, in a way, if I'm left to just journey on a little bit longer without stumbling, which I seem to be doing a lot lately, I'm falling. I have no complaints about my life. I thank you very much. One more question. Can you still put your socks on standing up? I can do it standing up, but I tend to do it one-handed these days. But it, it, I am only concerned about my socks. It's one of the first things I think about in the morning because there was a great um, a man called John Mortimer and he said he knew he was getting old when he had to ask his daughter to help him and put his socks on. Are you ever going to ask me to put your socks on? Never. And on that bombshell, that's it for the opening season of the third act. We hope you've enjoyed listening to the past 12 episodes as much as we've enjoyed bringing them to you. And happily, it's au revoir rather than goodbye, because we'll be back later this year with a second season featuring further vintage conversation with Sparkling Minds. So be sure to stay subscribed to the podcast to be the first to hear them. This series was produced by Pete Norton and was made possible by Orion's luxurious residences that are redefining later living in the heart of Chelsea. I'm Catherine Fairweather, and I look forward to seeing you here again soon for the next season of The Third Act. <laughs>